Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm recording this intro on the first day of the UK-wide lockdown that's taking place in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Here at Intelligence Squared, we know that the pandemic is very much, understandably, front and center of everyone's minds at the moment. But we still want to flag up the incredibly important historical, political and economic issues of the day that are still going on throughout this whole pandemic. And in this episode, we are bringing you Rashid Khalidi, who's one of the world's top experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict coming from the Palestinian side in conversation with Jonathan Friedland. Rashid Khalidi is the author of a book titled The Hundred Years War on Palestine. And in this podcast, he gives his perspective on the last hundred years of the Israel-Palestine conflict. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. Welcome, Rashid Khalidi. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be with you. And it's, it's a very arresting title, and it's in a very arresting book, and we'll get on to that. But first, I just wanted to ask you something about the form of the book, the style, because as we just said there, you're a professor, you're a scholar, and yet this book is infused with the personal. That's right. It's the first book I've ever written in which I, uh, I employ the first person and in which I'm involved. I describe my own experiences in a couple of episodes. And I did that partly because I was urged to do that by my son, who said, uh, "It's you know you've written enough for ac- other academics. You've written enough scholarly, boring." He said, <laughs> um, "The family critic. There precise, always has to be one." Uh, uh, my, my harshest critic is my wife, but my son's close, close second. Close second. <laughs> and he said, you, "What you really must do is write something that's accessible and relatable." And you're talking about things that you were involved in. You were in Beirut during the siege in 1982. Your father worked for the UN. You had experiences and so on. Put those things in a book. And so at his urging, I gingerly attempted to change the voice that I'd used for decades in writing. And this is the result. And what difference do you think it makes to a book like this? I was trying to write it for people who are not experts. I was trying to write it for people who don't know the story at all. And I'm hoping that it makes it easier for them to understand. When I talk about my uncle did this or I saw that or my wife, this or that or the other. I mean, we should say that obviously everybody, every scholar could infuse a bit of themselves. But in your case, the Halidi family, it's a distinguished Palestinian family. And you're able in the very introduction to quote what to me was an extraordinary document, this letter from right. your, I think, great, great, great uncle. Precisely. To the founder of modern political Zionism, Theodore Herzl. Who and responded. Eek, and, and that's the thing. It's a <laughs> correspondence between them. So just tell us about that. Well, that's, that's how this really started. The genesis of the book is some research I was doing in Jerusalem for an, an entirely different project, which resulted in a scholarly tome that, you know, still in print, you know, students refer to it, but no ordinary citizen is going to read it. Uh, and I was rummaging around in family papers, and I found the papers of this gentleman, Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi, who had been mayor of Jerusalem on and off for a total of 10 years, who had been uh, the deputy for Jerusalem in the first Ottoman parliament of 1877-78, and who had been a diplomat and a scholar and 
had a really interesting – I found later on had a really interesting personal history. You had knew of him before. He wasn't a total newcomer to you. The correspondence is known. I mean I, I didn't discover the correspondence. I discovered his le- private papers and I was fascinated by the man and I realized that there's a huge backstory to this. This is not just some letter that he wrote to the chief rabbi of France to be forwarded to Theodore Herzl. This is a man who had worked and lived and taught and studied in Vienna. This is a man who understood anti-Semitism. This is a man who had studied Judaism. He had books on Judaism in his personal library, which were in the family library that I was working in, in Jerusalem. Uh, This is a man who, if you read the letter carefully, is very knowledgeable about European anti-Semitism, Judaism, Zionism, and Palestine. And so his letter actually against that context and that background takes on, I think, I argue in the book, takes on added significance. And Herzl's response, which was very courteous and very rapid, also, I think, takes on added significance. I mean, I was just going to say that several years ago, I wrote a book about three members, generations of my own family and people who read it then after said it's very clear that in the one who was furthest back, I, you know, that I had seen something of myself in him. Mm. Turns out he was, uh, you know, born in uh, Eastern Europe, in Belarus or Lithuania, depending which day of the week it was in terms of the border. But eventually via Britain, ended up living in Palestine Mm -hmm. and was an official in the British colonial administration in Palestine, rose to be the acting commissioner for migration in the end. This man. What was his name? uh, Nathan Mindel, his name was. He's in some of the books. The point about him was that people said to me, it's very obvious you must see something of yourself in him. Otherwise, you wouldn't pick something. It seems to me that in your, you see something of yourself in your great, great, great uncle, a scholar, Mm -hmm. uh, sometime diplomat, but also somebody who has this knowledge of Jews and Judaism. And you as a scholar sitting in Colombia, you would have moved between these worlds. Born in born in 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 New York City and educated in the in I graduated from high school in New York City. And one of the most Jewish cities in the world. Precisely. So like him, your great great uncle, you come at this as somebody who knows both worlds. He had also worked in Russia. So he knew not just Viennese anti Semitism and Karl Luger, the the, the anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna and so on. He knew Russian anti-Semitism as well. So just tell us something about what the two men say to each other because I think it does frame the discussion right. we're going to have. Right. Well, um, it, it's clear from his letter and from his library that Yusuf Lea uh, Al-Khaldi knew, as I said, a great deal about Zionism and, and about the, the, the situation of European Jewry. Um, this is after uh, pogroms in the 1890s in Russia and so on and so forth. He knew about that. He had read the Bible. He was, a, he was he'd, he'd had a Muslim, traditional Muslim education, but he'd also had a Western education. And he was knowledgeable about Christianity and Judaism, both theologically and, and in terms of history of religion. And so he writes to Herzl. And the first few pages of the letter are quite remarkable because he talks about Judaism and Jews and Zionism with a great deal of sympathy. You are our cousins. Of course, you have a right here in Palestine and so on and so forth, meaning he's read the Bible, meaning, he, you know, from the Muslim and a, and a Jewish perspective, uh, through Abraham, uh, Jews and, and, and Arabs are, Christ, are cousins. And, but he goes on to say, there are, uh, Zionism in principle is fine. I mean, that the, that the persecuted Jewish people should want to have this, this uh, 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 a solution to their problem is perfectly understandable. 
and Palestine, of course I can understand why you would be thinking of Palestine. And However, there's a line there which you say has been subsequently taken precisely. out, ripped out of precisely. context. Nothing could be more just. In which like he that. says something like, you know, you were here for even yes. before your ancestors, even before ours. Nothing he doesn't say that. He, he sees yeah. both ancestors as being both at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Children of Abraham. Yeah. But he goes on to say, however, there are material obstacles. First of all, this is part of the Ottoman Empire, and that's going to be a problem. But secondly, he says, this is a country that is inhabited and whose population will refuse to be superseded. And you must take that into account. And so he says, finally, for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. You know, nothing could be more just than that the persecuted Jewish people find a refuge. But let it not, he doesn't, this is, I'm now paraphrasing, but let it not be here. Herzl, to his credit, unlike many others who have completely ignored the Palestinians or their representatives or their rights or their interests or whatever, to his credit, responded rapidly and very courteously. He avoided answering or responding to any, any significant point in, uh, in Yusuf Diyad Khaldi's letter. Uh, he, he alighted them. He danced around them. And he said something actually quite significant. He said, but who would think of removing this population? And I, as I point out in the book, this is not something that Yusuf Diyad ever mentioned. He... he, he he couldn't he, – he saw that there would be a problem. He saw that there would be a collision potentially but he didn't even think. And you have to go back to Herzl's diaries to see that he was thinking about that and early Zionists were thinking about – in Herzl's diaries, he talks about spiriting the population across the border. We do it surreptitiously. It strikes me that moment. It was like a moment in a sort of detective show when the sort of suspect answers a question no one's asked. Precisely. And that confirms to the detective it was on their mind. Precisely. Uh, and that's where, as you say, Herzl addresses this point that no one suggested about expulsion. But he does offer – and you say this is uh, – this will get into the broader point that he says, well, economic life, overall life will improve. Well, I, uh, the point I make is that – I mean, I'm a historian of the modern Middle East. I've studied, you know, Cromer. I've studied Sir Herbert Samuel. I've studied British high commissioners here, colonial officials there. This is colonial rhetoric. Of course we're here to better the lot of the miserable local population. That's the justification for colonialism. And uh, it, of course, entirely misses the point. Um, it tries to establish a different rationale. And that's what that's what Herzl was trying to do. And that has been a constant theme. Of course we're making their lives better. I mean you hear it today in Israeli propaganda. Look at the population of the West Bank. They may be under this and that set of conditions. But look at their GDP per capita. I mean it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a constant argument of colonialists. And you argue that's a tell, another one, that because this is the classic rhetoric of colonial movements. And, and the reason why that's significant is, that, uh, is it chimes with the central thesis of the book, which, look, you're not hiding it. It's right there in the title, which is a very, as I say, I think it will be for a lot of people very provocative, a history of settler colonial conquest and resistance. So you're setting out your stall Precise. right up front. Let's just, in a way, walk through the thesis. I mean, you say that uh, Zionism and the, uh, uh, you know, the Jewish presence or renewed Jewish presence over the last 100 plus years in Palestine is a classic, it's the word you use, example of colonialism. Before I get to it, I want to sort of walk through what I suspect will be the objections to that mm. thesis. Just sort of, in a nutshell, if you can, set out why it is that you think this phenomenon, which has not been seen that way, and you make that point that until now most people haven't viewed it this right. way, why it should be viewed that way. 
I, I think any self-respecting student of the subject who has ever read anything by Jabotinsky or Herzl would be hard-pressed to deny that the self-view of the Zionist project for the first 50-odd years was that it was a colonial settler project. Jabotinsky being, we should say, the godfather of sort of Likud Zionism. Every prime minister, almost every, I should say, almost every, from Menachem Begin to Netanyahu. Netanyahu's father, Benjamin Netanyahu's father, was uh, Jabotinsky's private secretary for a time. So the self-view of the Zionist movement was that, of course, this is a national movement. This is a movement of return to the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. But we are a colonial movement. We are establishing colonies. The, the institution that establishes almost every settlement from the 18, late 1870s when the first ones, modern agricultural colonies are established until the establishment of the state of Israel were founded by something called the Jewish Colonization Agency. This is not some anti-Semitic smear by some fanatic Arab professor. This is the self-description of every Zionist. Well, from the beginning. how of, that institution has been more or less sort of airbrushed out of the history. You don't hear it mentioned often, that body. Well, there are two reasons. First of all, Zionism understood, the Zionist movement, I should say, understood at the outset that it needed an imperial protector. So Herzl went around Europe and the Ottoman Empire trying to sell the Kaiser or sell Sultan Abdul Hamid II or sell the French on the idea that a, a, a backing the Zionist movement would be a benefit, whether to the Ottoman Empire or to France or to, or to Germany. He failed. The person who succeeded was Chaim Weizmann. Weizmann sold this as an ally of British imperialism, an ally of the British Empire. And that was the way in which... Zionism self-identified, understood itself, and was understood by Britain. And Britain entered into this out of no philo-Semitic love for the Jewish people. The, the, the person who issues, issues the Balfour Declaration, Lord Balfour, is the person who authored the Alien Exclusion Acts, which kept persecuted Jewish refugees from the pogroms in Russia from coming into Great Britain. No philo-Semite. He was doing what he did, as did everybody in that war cabinet, for entirely strategic political reasons. I mean, some of them had read the Bible, like David Lloyd George, and he was influenced by Zionism, he believed in it, but they all were doing it for... In a kind of Christian Zionist precisely. way, that this would herald the second coming precisely. Uh, precisely. once the Jews had been returned to their ancient in homeland. Very much the way evangelical Christians in the United States are, 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 are fervent supporters of Israel. The point is that the Zionist movement was an ally of British imperialism, saw itself as a colonial movement. This is not – I'm not making this stuff up. I mean I quote Jabotinsky at length. I quote Herzl at length. And I, I, I could have spent pages and pages and pages going into detail about this self-view. What happens is they come to a clash with Britain in 1939 when Great Britain issues the White Paper, which limits immigration, which calls for independence without the Jews being a majority of Palestine and limits land sales. And there is a break there. And so the Zionist movement ends up turning against Britain, finding other sponsors, the United States and the Soviet Union, and comes to see itself as an anti-colonial movement. So it's not entirely a fantasy for them to say, oh, we're anti-colonial. Well, they were for a very short period from 1939 onwards. However, without the support of British imperialism, without British bayonets, without what Jabotinsky calls an iron wall, this project would never have been successful or certainly wouldn't have been as successful as it was. So uh, I want to so, get so, on to so, – so, so this colonial thing is not my – No. It's uh, not an interpretation. But I want, to, I want to put, just get you beyond the self-image point mm -hmm. and I think it's very 
important that up until the break with Britain, mm-hmm. uh, Zionism's own self-description, as you, as you argue in the book, would be of a colonial movement. But beyond just the self-image, mm-hmm. in the book you set out practically and right. in real terms on the ground, it has the characteristics of right. a colonial movement. Just give us two or three illustrations of that. Well, one of the things that has to be said about it is that Zionism as a settler colonial movement is comparable in some ways to others, the United States, settler colony, Canada, settler colony, Australia, New Zealand, Algeria, Kenya, South Africa. But Zionism is completely different in that it does not involve a metropolitan population seeing itself as an extension of the metropole. British settlers in Kenya or British settlers in Boston thought of themselves as subjects of the crown, saw themselves as an extension of the British Empire. French settlers in North Africa, in, in, in Algeria in particular, were French people extending France. Zionism was a national movement at the same time. I, mean, I argue you can walk and chew gum at the same time. To say it's a settler colonial movement doesn't deny its nature as a national movement. Of course it was a national movement. It's established a successful national state, just like the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So to say it's a settler colonial project at the outset doesn't deny its national content. Of course, what mobilizes people is not that we're going to go serve British imperial interests, is that we're going to, we're going to serve our own interests as a people in reestablishing. And you can, you know, the, the logic of yes. that is self-evident. So what I'm suggesting here is that unlike almost any other colonial movement I can think of, Zionism was independent of its imperial, uh, imperial patrons. It had an independent financial base for one thing. It had an independent headquarters. The headquarters of the Zionist movement was in Europe and, and is now largely in the United States and Europe. It never was completely a tool of either British imperialism or later on American hegemony in the Middle East, even though it was closely allied with and dependent on external powers throughout its existence, the Zionist project and now the state of Israel. But it was always an independent operation intended to, intending to reestablish in their view Jewish sovereignty in the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. What I was thinking of in terms of on the ground, just because I want, I want, I want to come to the counter arguments in a minute, mm-hmm. but I want you to sort of set out, was that not only did it depend upon the support of imperial powers, initially Britain, and then, as you say, United States and even the Soviet Union at the time of the creation, but in terms of its actual behavior right. on the ground, and I'm thinking particularly of, for example, the concept of Avodah Ivrit, Hebrew labor, right, right. that, that the, uh, the, new, the new Zion would come into being partly by Jews doing the work themselves, and, they, and that was built up at the time as being a liberating concept that Jews who had previously been excluded from, for example, Precisely. working the land, now would do that themselves. But you say that functions, in effect, as a classic imperial move because it means the settler population are, for one thing, have access to land and ownership of land, and the indigenous population is pushed to one side. Precisely. It's those kinds of things. I just, just give us a couple of examples like that right. to show us, that, as you would characterize it, an imperial character to this project. This is a movement intended to supersede and take the place of the indigenous population. It did not intend to exploit them. The idea was Hebrew labor, as you said, but it intended to displace them and replace them. It did not intend to exterminate them, though it did it, the movement engaged in ethnic cleansing in 1947, 48, 48 in particular. But it's, in that respect, it's similar to but quite different from other settler colonial movements. In North America, they exterminated most of the population or in Australasia. In Algeria and in South Africa and Kenya, they exploited them. They, did not, they did, actually did neither in the Palestinian case. They intended to create a Jewish state based, as you say, on a separate Jewish economy, 
built up through Jewish labor and Jewish capital, which would displace and replace the existing society. And this was the understanding both of Zionist leaders, Weizmann and, and so on in the 20s and 30s, and of the British uh, politicians who made who, – who created – who shaped the Balfour Declaration and shaped British policy. So Lloyd, uh, David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, Balfour, they have a meeting with Weizmann at one point and they say, of course we're not going to allow representative government for the Palestinians because the Palestinians are a majority. They'll, they'll, they'll immediately stop this whole project. Um, we intend for you to become a majority and then you will exercise self-determination in, in, in Palestine. And that was the, that was the Zionist uh, objective. They did this through colonization, buying land and establishing agricultural colonies. And it, it's telling that in an early stage in the Zionist movement, some of the backers like Baron Hirsch and Rothschild, Lord Rothschild, were thinking of colonies in other places as well. The idea was to save the persecuted Jewish populations of Eastern Europe. And so Argentina and, and, and East Africa and other places were originally envisaged as places where these colonies of European Jewish settlers could be set up in these colonial uh, environments. So let's go to what, some, what I think some of the objections uh, to this would be. And the first one would be that you have just, in the course of our short conversation so far, given us two or three uh, differences between this movement and right. a classic imperial movement. So your point about the metropole and people, you right. know, Brits in Kenya seeing themselves as still Brits, there's no parallel to that, uh, that they didn't engage in uh, the extermination of the indigenous population that you know the the united in the, the, was paved the way for the united states uh that e, uh, even the notion of the sort of having their own separate headquarters etc at what point are there so many differences in this case from what people normally understand as colonialism or imperialism mm -hmm. that in a way those labels become less useful or not useful well there are differences but i would argue that you know, colonials, settler colonialism in Canada is different from settler colonialism in the United States. The, the first nations in Canada are treated completely differently mm. than, the in, than the Native American population of North America. And Algeria is different than Kenya and so on and so forth. And the, the key difference is that this is also a national movement. That's a big difference. And, but but and the, that's the one I had in mind. And I wondered if that difference was so big as to almost cancel out or invalidate the colonial difference. label, partly because the colonial and imperial carry such negative connotations in liberal opinion in Europe and other places, that if you're also saying it's actually a movement, a national movement, Zionists themselves would say a movement of national self, national liberation, yeah. then in a way, well, how useful is it to say it's an imperial movement? Uh, again, I go back to my my, my uh, saying what I said. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. If it has all the characteristics of a colonial settler movement, if it cannot survive without the support of a metropolitan power, a great power, if it could not have done what it did, and Jabotinsky was crystal clear on this. He's the smartest and the most honest of the early Zionist leaders. He's not deceiving people, which was Ben-Gurion's job, and he was not self-deceiving, which many liberal Zionist leaders have done and do to this day. He was completely blunt and completely straightforward. He said, you cannot do this without an imperial power. That is the characteristic of a colonial settler movement. There is no American – there's no United States of America without the crown suppressing the indigenous population. Now, they come, they come, to, they come to blows during the American War of, of Independence. But all, of, all, all settler colonies need a metropolitan power. The difference between Zionism and, and, and most of them that I pointed out is that they were not – an extension of the metropole. They were a separate and independent uh, uh, entity. One related difference that people would mention here, and it's there in the correspondence between your great-great-uncle and right. 
Theodor Herzl is the notion of the historic link, an ancient right. and religious link right. of Jews to this landscape. The Brit who left Plymouth or Norfolk or London for Kenya did not have any kind of historical religious link Correct. with the land of Kenya. They didn't pray three times a day of turning uh, towards to face Africa Correct. in the way that Jews for 2,000 years have mentioned Jerusalem in their prayers and turned towards it and regard themselves as uh, hailing from that part of the world. Surely that difference isn't just a kind of walking and chewing gum difference. Surely that is a fundamental difference. Of course. Um, in the nature of this scheme. Of course, though if you look carefully at the self-view of settlers in North America, in the United States, or you look closely at the self-view of the Boers in South Africa, they came to see themselves as having some kind of God-given right to that land. Now, they didn't have a biblical connection, obviously, and Zionism is extraordinarily fortunate in that because it is a modern national movement. The great-grandfather, the great-great-grandfather of nobody thought of Jewish sovereignty in Palestine as a natural, necessary situation for the Jewish people. The idea that there was a Jewish people and the idea of a connection, of course, goes way, way back. That's, that's ancient. But the idea of Jewish self-determination, nationhood, statehood, and so on and so forth, is a 19th century idea. And so what was an ancestral connection, if maybe let, leave aside ancestral, a religious connection. I mean, who knows what the actual ancestry of Arabs or Jews is? The DNA, who knows? That's not the point. The point is people think and understand and have believed for millennia that they have a connection to this and place. And one thing is very impressive in the book, I must just say, as a sort of tangent, is you are completely even-handed on that point about the inventedness right. of nation right. national identities. And you say with one hand, look, this may be invented on the Jewish side, but it's just as invented on the Palestinian I, side. I have, both societies, both nations do this. This is just in the nature of nationhood. I have no more time for a biblical connection or for a Jebusite or Canaanite connection than I have for Vincent and the Gaulois as the ancestors of the French. It's it, There's some truth to the fact that there was a Vincent or that there were Gauls or that there was a, 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 a biblical kingdom. But what its connection to the modern nation state is, is a matter for mythology. But in a way, I feel at and, that and that's point... that's true of Arab nationalism or Palestinian I mean, yes, you're turning to your, nationalism or any nationalism. You're, in that moment, I felt you were turning to your fellow Palestinians and saying... Don't kid yourself that somehow – don't get on a high horse and say we are a real nation and right, they're right, somehow right. not a real nation. All nations are in some ways of the mind. I've said this in three different books. My great-great-great-grandfather did not think of himself or my great-great-great-grandmother did not think of herself as a Palestinian. They thought of themselves as Jerusalemites or Muslims or uh, uh, subjects of the Ottoman Empire or, or, or members of a family or whatever – or Arabs possibly – and they thought of themselves as living in Palestine. The idea of Palestine existed, but that that was the, the, the container into which their identity fitted primarily uh, occurred to them no more than it did to anybody else before the French Revolution, essentially. Yeah. Now, you can say, well, there's Englishness and so on and so forth. But this country brings in a Dutchman to rule it in 1688. This country brings in a German to rule it. When this Queen country Anne, being Britain. This country being the yeah, United, yeah. United Kingdom, which yeah. is where we're doing yeah, this yeah. interview. Brings in a German rule. So nationality is important and the idea of a nation and nation state and nationality is developing in, in, in England. But 
this is proof positive of what I'm trying to argue. It's very, I mean, we must get back to the main thing, but just while we're in this tributary, the, your, your point there about your great-great-grandmother or great-grandfather, there are Jews and Zionists who would seize on that to right. say, well, somehow that tells you the Palestinian identity is a relatively recent invention. And what you would, I think, be saying, just judging from the book is, you know, maybe, but so is this notion of Jewish sovereignty Precisely. in Israel. This is all recent stuff. But to go... All nationalism is. Yeah, of this, of this particular kind. Right. I mean, in this modern incarnation. That's not to say there's not such a thing as peoplehood. Yes. But that's not modern nation state But that, I think, is, goes to something just different because I'm thinking of the average sort of uh, self-respecting, uh, self you know, guardian-reading British anti-colonialist or anti-imperialist, part of their objection would be this notion, as I say, that somebody sailed from uh, Hampshire or, you know, Wales to India or actually, better example, Canada or Australia and claim that they this is their own. Right. That that feels of a different order once you – or does it – once you have acknowledged that there is – as I say, that historical religious connection to land, it wasn't kind of random in that way. As Yusuf Leah said, if the place had been empty, it wouldn't have mattered. The place wasn't empty. Yeah. And if you have to conquer it and displace the original population, A, you're a colonialist. Yeah. And B, it's not the same thing. So good. So let's say we accept that and then we move on to what would be the second argument, mm -hmm. which is the difference in this case was need. Mm -hmm. That the son of the aristocrat in Norfolk who decided that he uh, – the second son, the first son had inherited the estate. The second son has to go somewhere and gets on a ship and goes to the new world is doing that simply because out of kind of in effect greed mm -hmm. that they're saying we've got all this wealth here but we want more of it. Mm -hmm. You uh, mentioned that the background even to the correspondence was – that your great-great-uncle was involved in, was persecution, pogroms, centuries right. and centuries. And also the reason why there wasn't the metropole in the sense that Paris animated the settlers of Algeria, there was no metropole because there was no land at all. Right. So the Jews who head into uh, to Palestine are landless, in right. stark contrast to those settlers who go to Australia or New Zealand or well, Canada, who just wanted an extra one. They already had Britain and wanted another one. Does not that question of need make this not just categorically, sort of analytically different, but morally different. I would shy away from this so-called moral argument. Let, let, let me speak to the need issue first. Yeah. I mean, we are used to, in understanding American history, the idea that the people who come to North America, besides your aristocrats and so on, are people either fleeing pers religious persecution, Puritans, dissenters, Jews, and so on, or people who are la themselves landless, poor, destitute, or are sent over as indentured servants or our slaves. So, I mean, I think this argument from need and persecution needs to be amplified. Most of the French settlers in North Africa are indigent as well. They're, 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 they're landless people. And many of them are not even French. They, they're taking it, uh, Sicilians, Italians, and so on and so forth, who are poor and indigent. Secondly, most people who fled Eastern Europe did not go to Palestine. The persecuted uh, masses of Eastern Europe, some of them became socialists and tried to stay there and change their societies. A very few of them went to Palestine. Most of them went to North America. Four million of them went to North America. A few tens of thousands went sure. to Palestine. So the recreation of Jewish sovereignty in Palestine as a function of need is obviously there's – there's a certain truth to it because Zionism is, is, is conceived of as a response to both what you suggested, landlessness and the absence of a state, but also persecution. But the response to persecution is either fighting it at home or emigrating to North America or Australia or whatever. 
the, the final thing is to argue that that right, in effect, moral, moral armor justifies everything that's done to the Palestinians is a monstrous moral argument, in my view. We are, we are jumping out of a, of a burning building and then we land on somebody and take their property? Uh, sorry, you have to jump out of a building. But what you then do to the people whom you land on is, has to be discussed morally, not in terms of the burning building, but what you do thereafter. If you expel them, if you steal their property, if you deny that they exist as a people, that has nothing to do with your having been persecuted. A does not justify B. A, in fact, has nothing to do with B. A is being used, in fact, as a cover for B, as I would argue is the biblical connection. I mean, as, as Yusuf Diaz says, who can deny the connection of Judaism and Jews to the land of Israel? What does that justify, however? You can say, well, that people have a right to live there. Do they have a right to rule there over the indigenous population at their expense, stealing their property, expelling half of them? Well, obviously not. That's not a moral argument. That's, in my view, an immoral argument. But I think it's good we've got to this because the uh, this subject of how we analyze and understand uh, the Jewish presence in historic Palestine isn't just a matter of history and uh, 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 analysis in the way that it would be to be talking about Algeria or Kenya now. It is because this is a live conflict and the question of legitimacy, I think, goes to the heart of it. Uh, And therefore, these arguments are, you know, they're morally charged arguments. I mean, that one about the jumping out of the building is tremendously interesting to me because... It's Edward Said's argument. Right. Um, And then the, the, the... and a, a sort of mirror image in a way of it, a different image, is the one that Amos Oz famously deploy, deployed, which is the, the drowning man. He imagines the Jews, after, particularly after the Holocaust, as a drowning man reaching for, and this is important, I think, the only piece of driftwood they could re- grab hold of, admittedly one that another drowning man is holding on to. Mm-hmm. And in his analogy, the Jews in 1947-48 are effectively saying – to the other drowning man, we're going to have to both hold on to this thing. Uh, and then in 1967, he elbows the other man off the, into the sea. That's his parallel. There's the flaw in the uh, Amos Oz argument. There was never any intention on the part of the mainstream Zionist movement of sharing. Absolute exclusive Jewish sovereignty and a Jewish majority in a Jewish state is Herzl's vision and the vision of every Zion, major Zionist leader. There were people like Brit Shalom. There were I wasn't dissidents. talking about that kind of sharing. Yeah. I know what you mean there, the sort of binational project. Right, right. I meant the sh- sharing envisaged in the 1947 partition plan, which says, here's this piece of dreadful driftwood. You're going to get roughly half mi- of it. You'll get the other half of it. We're the minority. We're going to take 55%. Right. It's not a half. and It's, it's, not, it's more than it's half. It's not sharing. Yeah. Uh, but partition. Except that if you look very carefully at what the Zionist movement is thinking of, they're thinking of taking the whole, as we say, kitten caboodle. The idea is not to share. The idea is not to have a Jewish minority. The idea is to have an absolute Jewish majority, which turns the place into a Jewish state. Mm-hmm. And the argument, I mean, Zionism has a certain logic to it, leaving aside the settler colonial aspect of it. And leaving, for that matter, leaving aside the biblical aspect of it, which is based on an understanding of what exile had meant and what exile had done to the Jewish people. They had to have a situation, according to Zionist thinking, in which they were a majority in order to end this unnatural state. And that necessitated doing things to the Palestinians, which have nothing to do with sharing a piece of driftwood. It's ours. By sufferance, you may be allowed to stay here. And I think the ultimate logic of that can be seen in the nation-state law of 2018, of July 2018. There is only one people 
that in, is to have the right of self-determination in this land. It's the Jewish people. The rest are here on sufferance. We will allow them to have whatever we choose to allow them. And, and so, mm-hmm. You know, you may stick on the end of this, but you have no rights here, the end of this, of this piece of driftwood. So that's not sharing. Sorry. Um, that's certainly absolutely how things have worked out historically. I think this, I suppose the interesting thing is whether you feel that was logically entailed and necessary from the start. Mm. I think you have, to read, mean, you have to read Ben-Gurion's diaries and you have to read Herzl's diaries and you have to read what these people are thinking, not, not the brilliant public relations effort that they've made for 100 years to sell it in different ways. I think you have to see what they always envisaged, which is a Jewish state in all of the place, not, not in a bit of it. In 48, they were not able to take all of it. The, yeah. the, 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 the Jordanian army held the high ground and they couldn't defeat them. They couldn't overrun them. They, they stopped then and in 67, they took the rest. And the, since 67, they haven't looked back. Mm. No, uh, there's no, you can't argue with the facts of it. And I think mm-hmm. that, uh, I'm, I'm interested just in whether... At, at any point, because you mentioned the point about Jewish minority, if they – and this is relevant for, for Palestinians because of the series of decisions Palestinians took. But in 1947, the partition plan mm-hmm. – and I, can, I take your point exactly. They were then a minority and yet the, they were allocated by the UN under that plan 55% of the territory. Mm-hmm. But in principle, if you had said, here's this land, it could be partitioned a different way, 40%, 35%. And in the bit that's allocated to Jews, Jews will be the majority mm-hmm. – would even that have been legitimate in the terms that we are now I mean, discussing? I'm it, not it, sure it, it would. It depends what your in your terms. It depends on what your baseline is. If your baseline is the covenant of the League of Nations, which says the peoples that are to come under mandate are to achieve self determination, then everything Zionism is trying to do contradicted that covenant. If your baseline is uh, the the uh, United Nations Charter which again talks about self-determination. And the Palestinians said, we're the majority. We, determine, we, we should have the right to determine our future as a majority. If you say, no, this minority has some special status and they therefore get to take most of the country, including most of the fertile land, and they have military power that's going to enable them to take the rest very quickly, then you're talking about something completely different. So it depends on what your baseline is. If you start from the, 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 the burning house, the man jumping or the Oz metaphor – then there's a, r- a right that, that attaches to Zionism and to the, the Jewish people that trumps, prevails over every other right. But I mean, I would start from the UN Charter and the Covenant of the League of Nations. I mean, mm-hmm. what right does this minority have to impose uh, itself in that way on the majority? I'm just going back to your the burning building and mm-hmm. Saeed's image. And the burning building is, is, is really fully ablaze by 1945 after the Holocaust. Where else could the Jews have jumped out of and landed, which wouldn't have been landing on somebody? Well, I mean, they could, they, if, if the United States and other countries had not had anti-Semitic and, and, and racist immigration laws, which was the case in the United States in the 40s, and something that Roosevelt and later Truman were not willing or able to change, uh, there were very few other places for them to go. Um, but for them to go to dominate is one thing and for them to go as refugees is another thing. So if you're talking about rescue and salvation, that's fine. But Zionist movement wasn't about rescue and salvation. The Zionist movement was about sovereignty, domination, hegemony, statehood, and a majority. I mean, that's what it was always about. It was, it, 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 it was a response to the need created by persecution, mm. even before the Holocaust. I think partly the thinking was, we don't just want to be refugees. Precisely. Given what we've, what we've experienced, Precisely. we want self-determination, and that just, requires majority and statehood. We don't just want to be a minority. That's the other yeah. core element of Zionism. Core element. And, and crucial in the current so, politics. So, so you have a, you have a, uh, a conflict 
in which what I'm arguing in this book, you not only have this colonial settler background to it, which you see again with the settlement of the occupied territories since 1967. I mean, it's come, it's come out in clarity for the last 50 odd years. But you also have this element of relying on external powers to shoehorn you into yeah. getting what you want. So it's not just that the Palestinians are weak or disorganized or badly led or made bad decisions or whatever. It's that the United States and the Soviet Union in the case of 1947 had one interest, which is a Jewish state. They didn't want an Arab state. That was the partition resolution. There wasn't going to be an Arab state. Why? Britain, the Zionist movement, the Jewish agency, and Jordan had decided and had agreed that there wouldn't be an Arab state. The United States and the Soviet Union did not put any provision in General Assembly Resolution 181 for the actual implementation of it. Who was to stop the much more powerful Zionist militias from storming Jaffa and Haifa, which they did long before the Arab armies enter in, weeks and months before the British leave, weeks and months before the state of Israel is established. That's what partition meant. It meant the bully, the stronger power. I mean, obviously, Israel is always seen and the Zionist movement is seen as weak and and, and uh, up against huge odds. In Palestine before, 19, before May 15th, uh, the Palestinians had been broken by British repression in the 30s. They were not able to put up any serious resistance. And that was the result of the partition plan. The United States and the Soviet Union didn't lift a finger. Where did the Arab state go? Why is there no Arab state? Is it that the Palestinians didn't try and establish it? They did. They established a government of all Palestine and Gaza. What did the great powers do? to ensure that the 40-odd percent of Palestine that was supposed to be an Arab state was, was protected from being overrun. Nothing. And I'm not talking about May 15th. I'm not talking about the Arab invasion. I'm talking about the months before that. Nothing. No implementation provision. So you mean even there. before Jordan comes in and takes the land, the, the West Bank and, was and Egypt, and Egypt, Egypt takes Gaza. Precisely. Even before that, the great powers have done nothing right. to three, nurture three. what had been in the UN resolution. There was no intention. To, or interest in creating an Arab state. And now it's time for a quick break. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash squared. So, so let, I want to go back to take three steps back just to your larger thesis about mm. colonialism because it's so important. And so, uh, as I said, it's, it's, it's a powerful way of reframing how mm. people see this. Mm-hmm. Once we do make that move, why then, and I, as I say, I think legitimacy is central to this, why then do we regard this colonial project as 
Now, of course, sitting in the United States, it would be regarded where the prevailing opinion of the political classes is sympathetic. But among liberal opinion in this part of the world, it would be regarded as more either illegitimate or more questionable than other colonial settler projects. In other words, nobody is talking about New Zealandism equals racism in the way they're aware about right. saying Zionism is racism. And no one talks about, you know, the questioning Australia's right to exist. I, I would never say Zionism is racist. No, I'm just saying that that I know I'm not talking to you. The practices of the Israeli state are quite frequently discriminatory and racist. But you wouldn't say Zionism, as, as Yusuf Dia said, in principle – there's no problem with the idea. It's the problem of the way it practices. Oh, but that's interesting because Zionism was always going to be in Palestine. No. It, at, at some stage, the first and second congresses, they were talking about Argentina. They were talking they were. about Sinai. I always think of those they were as, talking about East Africa. That yeah. changed over time. Eventually, they said it yes. has to be Palestine. I always think of those as, as sort of Jewish nationalism rather than Zionism. Once it's Zion, I always think that's, a, that, that's probably a faulty bit of semantics on my part. The, but anyway, sorry, go ahead. But, but the, it interests me the idea that these – if one – your move of uh, putting Zionism alongside Canada, Australia, right. New Zealand is a move I've made myself but from a different direction because I've sometimes said it's a puzzle for many Jews why this settler colonial project right. is regarded as more questionable. That's a good reason. More illegitimate actually. There's a good reason for that. Go on. Look at unsuccessful ones. Who defends Kenya? Who defends Algeria? Who defends South Africa? But it's a successful one. Stay with me. Yeah. Who who argues that the practices and the and the and the idea of F Algeria being part of France was not inherently discriminatory and racist? Nobody argues. It failed. United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, thanks to extermination, thanks to you know, smallpox, thanks to whatever it may have been, smaller population, whatever it may have been, are not only successful, but they are modern nation states that everybody recognizes. Nobody says there's not an Australia. Now, does that mean that the processes whereby the indigenous population of Australia or North America were treated were not racist and discriminatory or that they're not to, even to this day uh, treated in ways that are racist and discriminatory? It doesn't. Now, the fact that the same kind of outcry uh, doesn't rise – uh, over over North America, for example, it doesn't mean that it's not racist or people are not fighting it all the time. I mean, Native Americans and African Americans are still trying to get the United States to recognize the fact that this country was built on the, the, the theft of, of Native American property and the, the slave labor of African Americans. The United States has a long way to go to deal with that legacy. But it's not to say that people aren't arguing that forcefully in the United States. They are. I would compl completely agree with that and understand that, except I would dispute the extent to which, particularly outside, these are hot questions They're in not. the way that the birth of Israel is still a hot political question that because, can get tens of thousands of people out on the streets. however successful it has been, Zionism has not completely overcome the indigenous population. Well, but that is, worries me morally because, again, that seems to me to say the reward you get in the, in the court of public opinion is if you, do the, you go the whole way. I, uh, I understand. Oh, yes. So that – or rather, let's I put see. it right the other way. And I think Benny Morris has written in this area and it's a very – it's a morally repugnant way of thinking about it. But, you know, Zionism – Zionism's error was it didn't get rid of everyone because if it had, yeah. it would now be greeted in the salon of world nations like the Americans and the Australians and the New Zealanders. But because it didn't do that, and you recognize this earlier about the uh, how extermination wasn't part of the program, it pays this heavier price. No. So, you know, memo to future colonialists, 
exterminate everyone and then people will accept you. Read American colonial writings. The idea of extermination is there. Yeah. Read Zionist writings. What, what Herzl says at the very beginning in his diet, we will spirit them across the border. Benny Morris has no idea what he's talking about in this as in so many other areas <laughs> because simply pushing them out would not have solved the problem. Israel would still face the same kind of opprobrium because the Palestinians wouldn't have disappeared had all of them been driven into exile. Extermination might have solved the problem, but that's a 19th century or 18th century solution for a 20th and 21st century problem. Israel can't and couldn't do that and didn't, I'm, I'm clearly didn't intend to, no. but created for itself another kind of problem by displacing but not exterminating. Now, Benny Morse is wrong. Had he, had, he, had he been arguing for genocide, which he wasn't, he, he wouldn't have had a case anyway because in the 20th century, you can't get away with genocide. No, you could do it in the 19th century, yes. or the 18th century. You can't do it. There's a, there's a, there's a convention on genocide. Yes. There's the experience of the Holocaust. Yes. There's the experience of the Armenians, which you didn't have in 1900 or 1800 or whatever. But it's an odd – that's a very clear assessment of it. I, I, but you quote, and I think rightly, Tony Jutt's – Mm. observation that in a way Zionism came too late right. and that it was a 19th century movement that you know right. arrives in the railway station in 1948 it's too late but right. the world's view has changed right. uh, but that seems again difficult because people are so moralistic about this conflict and yet to locate to cite a moral objection in a matter of chronology what you have done, Israelis, would have been fine in, the, in 1948. In, 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 of course you're not. It would have been immoral it, then no, and of it's course, immoral but, now. But, but in terms of world opinion, would not be on your case if you'd no. done this in 1748. But because you did it in 1948, you're, ne you're going to be carrier of this around with you forever. It depends on what quote-unquote world opinion you're talking about. If you're talking about Lord this and that and this or that French colonialist, of course, as far as they're concerned, genocide is perfectly acceptable. Of course, as far as they're concerned, colonialism and exploitation is perfectly acceptable. Did the Indian national movement in the 19th and 20th century see it that way? Did the Irish national movement in the 19th and 20th century see it that way? Did uh, Arabs struggling against colonialism or Africans see it that way? Of course not. It was immoral, illegitimate, and something they fought tooth and nail from the very beginning. I mean, th the reason I put resistance in this is because that's how this kind of that's how the response to this offensive to establish one people at the expense of another has to be understood. It is resistance. And, and nobody accepted the morality of the extermination or the subjugation of populations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America uh, insofar as the indigenous population is concerned. Now, the good and the great in London and Paris and, 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 and uh, uh, other imperial capitals may have uh, – Madrid, whatever – may have thought it's just perfectly fine. But uh, I don't think that even by the standards of the time, if you take them not as the standards sure. of the imperialists, no, uh, I, I, it was acceptable. I, I'm just I mean, saying read, that, read the Las Casas. Yeah. Read some of the people who are talking about the extermination of Native Americans in Latin America. They saw the immorality of it, whether as Jesuits or whatever. Yes. And that's true of a few British, I mean, blunt. Uh, I could list a few mm. and a few French anti-colonialists. Anybody with any real moral sense, even in the 19th century, could I mean see is, that these, these things were wrong. I suppose what I'm saying is that liberal opinion – broadly defined in the West, has moved on when it comes to the origin story of the United States or New Zealand right. or Australia or Canada right. in a way that it hasn't in the Israel-Palestine case. Because the Israel-Palestine case is completely different. Yeah. That's a perfect good, perfectly good reason for that. But, but completely, it's, not, it's not double standards. I mean, this argument from double standards really, <laughs> I find a little, a little perplexing. We're using a modern 21st century or tw late 20th century standard. That's where we are. Yeah. We are not in the 18th century. 
And uh, Tony Judd, I mean, may God rest his soul. Tony was completely right on this. Yes, I suppose my point is that that it's, it seems to me a weak basis to say the moral difference between case A and case B is chronology. Well, I mean, I am an American citizen. I am not questioning the existence of the United States of America. Do I question the injustice involved in making making it uh, come about as it did? Of course, I do. I see no I see no moral inconsistency in that. No, and and your point is that you don't question actually now, as a matter of fact, the of existence not. of the state of Israel, which gets us to no, the. I don't exist. I don't contest. The fact that Israel has created a, a, a national entity in Palestine, that they have, that the people there have the right of national self-determination. I question the form in which that, which that has taken, of course, because it's a form which is inherently discriminatory and which has done things to the indigenous population which are completely unacceptable and not sustainable. Mm. They, you cannot live that way forever. Now, if they could kill everybody, then maybe they could. They won't and they can't. So that's not on the on the cards. Even if they were to displace everybody, it wouldn't solve the problem. For the reasons you explained. Uh, another Nekva would not solve the problem. And, you know, God forbid, obviously. The um, thing I want to ask you about is the future. Mm-hmm. With extraordinary prescience to me, I just as a journalist am full of respect for the way you anticipate the Trump so-called mm-hmm. deal of the century and the Trump plan. You, you know, Here is a book that's come out now. You had to write it before he unveiled this plan a couple or more weeks ago. And yet every word you've written about it absolutely describes the, the the plan in the sense of it's not a plan at all. It's certainly not a peace plan. It concedes to every demand on the wish list, not just of Israel, but of the Israeli far right, really. Precisely. Uh, and, you're, and you go through those in terms of, you know, eternal Israeli control and over a, an entirely whole Jerusalem rather than a partition of it into two states for the two uh, two, uh, two capital cities for the two future states about uh, recognition of annexation of Golan Heights and then the point about settlements that basically Israel given a green light by this plan to annex every one of the settlements it holds in the West Bank and leave the Palestinians with the crumbs that are left over. That's, that's broadly the – you anticipate that. That's exactly what happened. Where then should the those Palestinians themselves and those who would want to stand in solidarity with them around the world, where do, do they take this next? Because – you make the point that you feel the approach of sort of diplomacy with the United States as a an imagined honest broker, that has hit a dead end, mm-hmm. that approach associated with Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas. And on the other hand, the sort of what you, I think, describes nominal armed resistance on the Hamas side has also hit a dead end. What then? Where next for the Palestinians right. in this 100 years process that you've described in this book? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that it didn't take a great deal of foresight to see what was coming down the pike in terms of what Trump was planning to say. Uh, they were telegraphing what they were going to do, A, and B, they were taking dictation from their Zionist mentors, from their Israeli mentors, uh, the, the Kushners and the Greenblatts and the, the people who put this thing together, and the David Friedmans, the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Israel, the president's advisor, uh, Jason Greenblatt, for Middle East diplomacy, and, and the president's son-in-law. I mean, what they actually know about Palestine and what I know about astronomy, you can put in a thimble. They were they were being told by people who have had plans to do these things for generations. Uh, there's a wonderful piece today and uh, the other day in Foreign Policy about the Drobles Plan of 1979, which is exactly the Trump plan, exactly. So this has been planned by the, the, the people who, who, who have been engaged in strategic planning uh, for Israel for 40 years. It was perfectly clear what they were going to do if they got, as you say, their wish list. 
And that's what Trump gave them. So uh, anybody could see that coming. The second thing I would say, just in answer to your, the second part of what you just just uh, asked, is that I mean I'm a historian. <laughs> I I can talk about the future, but what I know and what I think is you know has very should ha has and should have very very little weight. I, I say in the book, and I believe firmly in a couple of things. One of them is that any solution that's not based on complete equality of rights of every sort, personal, civil religious, political, national, for every individual and every collectivity, both Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Arabs, will not be a sustainable, long-term, peaceful solution. Now, how you achieve that, I have absolutely no idea. I'm asked this by audiences when I speak all the time. I don't know. One state, two states, multiple states, cantons, single state. We actually have a one-state solution now, a very bad one. A one-state reality. A one-state – no, it's a, it's, it's, it's a solution that, that one side is trying to impose. The reality is a one-state reality and the Trump plan is a one-state plan. There's one state, one sovereignty, one security power between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. That's the state of Israel. By the nation-state law, there's one people with the right of national self-determination in the land of Israel. That's the Jewish people. So this is a one-state solution that's being imposed. And just on that, what word would you use to describe the Palestinian area in this plan? Is it? I mean, you can use different metaphors. It looks like leprosy. It looks like Bantustans. It's 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 fragmented. It's it's. Uh, it, 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 but you was, wouldn't call that a state, as well, envisaged it, by that Trump plan. If it has no control yeah. over security, Israel has security. If it has no contiguity with a f no borders, no control of its borders. No contiguity with any state outside. It's completely inside Israel, i.e. areas to, that would be annexed to the state of Israel, the Jordan River Valley and large chunks of the West Bank. If it has no control over its water or other underground resources, no control over its airspace, no control over its population register, it's not a state. It's not even a state. If it doesn't walk like a duck and doesn't quack like it's, a duck, it's not it a duck. It has no sovereignty, no jurisdiction, yeah. no authority. It's not even an authority. It is a – you can call it whatever you want, but it, it, it would be doing – I mean Orwell would turn in his grave at the violence to language that's being done in talking about this miserable uh, outcome as a state. It's not a state by any real definition. So when you went through that list, you said cantons, one state, two state, confederation. Was that to say they're all acceptable or they're all unacceptable? No, no, no. It is to say that it doesn't matter how equality is instantiated. How you achieve equality, whether it's done in multiple – two or more states, I don't really – I mean, I, first of all, it's not up to me. And secondly, and most importantly, it doesn't really matter that much as long as those principles – as long as both people see that they have achieved their right of self-determination, however that may be. I mean, there are, there are multinational states in which peoples feel that they've achieved their national self-realization. There are situations where you have cantons or partition or whatever it may be. Uh, I, I don't really think that's as important. And I think a lot of partisans of Palestinian rights have gotten lost in a one-state, two-state debate. In fact, both outcomes are a, a, a just one-state solution, a shared one-state solution, or a just uh, two-state partition solution are both, uh, in present circumstances, are equally unrealizable. Yeah. So it, it's not a question of this is a realistic and this is unreal. Both are not, in present terms, realistic. Does the um, uh, settlement project of 50 plus years mean that actually a geographical two states is now impossible because I mean, you just could not draw the line that partitions these two peoples let, into let, two states. Let me go back to my late friend Tony Judd. He said 
what any politician has done, another politician can undo. So I would never say impossible. Mm. You know, if you settle people and give them benefits and privileges, you can unsettle them and move them. I mean, it's just a matter of money. And the ones who fight, you do what Israeli politicians have been very reluctant to do, mm. but you force them to move. Now, that's not going to happen, in my view. It's not likely. It is meant to be an inexorable process. It has been carefully planned as an inexorable process. You can go back to the Elon plan. You can go back to things in 1967. Uh, what's his name? I'm forgetting his first name. Raz has a wonderful book, and there are a couple of other wonderful books on the immediate aftermath of the war and the decisions made by the Israeli cabinet. It's perfectly clear that some outcomes are envisaged as inconceivable and others are the way that they're probably going to go. From the very beginning, but certainly after Begin comes to power in 77, this is a bulldozer that has never stopped. Could it be reversed? Of course it could be reversed. Mm. Is it going to be reversed? I don't think so. So let's but just, it could be. As you say, you're not a politician, you're a historian. You've written this book, of which is, you know, powerfully weaves together your own personal family history and the history of the conflict and urges people to see it in a different way and to right. reframe their understanding. I want to ask you what the effect of that would be. Um, the, effect of what? Sorry. the effect of the book, if people did re- if they did un- understand and view this conflict through the lens you have constructed for them in this book, because uh, what I'm saying is your mm. your intervention is not as a politician; it is no. as a, a writer of books and as a historian. So I'm I'm asking in a way, what's the effect yeah. you would either hope for or or think might come about if we if through this act of reframing? So just as a one tangible example. I think the logic of your book must be that we would call the settler in Efrat a settler, but we would call the resident or citizen of Tel Aviv a settler as well, that both should be called settlers, that that distinction should be broken down. And if we did do that, but more broadly, if we just took on took to heart the message of this book, and perhaps this might have to be our closing question, what would be the effect that you would hope for from that process? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to label this or that person this or that way. Was this a settler colonial project? Yes. I, I think that has to be recognized. I mean, America recognizes it. We talk about the colonial period. <laughs> now, in the United States, it's, it's talked about with pride. Yeah. So colonial Williamsburg is a, is a tourist destination. Nevertheless, everybody recognizes this is the outcome of a colonial settler project. Some countries like Canada and Australia, I think, and New Zealand have come to terms better with accepting their history, accepting that huge injustice was done trying to do something to make up for it. I think that's what has to happen with Israel. I'm not suggesting people should go around in sackcloth and ashes and, 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 and do penance, but injustice was done, has to be, historical injustice has to be recognized, and that has to be the basis for going forward. Does that mean that, you know, you uproot Tel Aviv? Of course it doesn't. Does that mean that the citizen of Tel Aviv is not a proud Israel? Of course he is, or she is. That's not the point. The point is how do you go forward if you don't recognize some of this, it's shared history after all. I mean, the Holocaust was a catastrophe for the Jewish people. The Holocaust and the rise to power of the Nazis, as I show in this chapter and in another book, was a catastrophe for the Palestinians. It gave an impetus to Zionism in the United States in particular, but worldwide, that it never had. It gave it an incredible, incredible moral weight that it simply didn't have. I mean, Kishniev and pogroms in the 1890s and 1920s and anti-Semitism created sympathy for Zionism, but nothing like what happened, which is not to say that, that, that uh, it's a bigger catastrophe for the Palestinians than for the Israelis, but you would not have had uh, the, the outcomes that you had were it not for the rise to power of Hitler. 
in in the in the late twenties and the, in the early thirties, the Jewish pop, the proportion the Jewish proportion of the population of Palestine was not rising anymore. It was stagnant, seventeen eighteen percent. The project was not succeeding. It was stalling at that point. It was stalling at the and this the depression had something to do with it, but Palestinian resistance had something to do with it. There were various facts. Hitler comes to power, and the thing goes on steroids. Firstly, because you have this immigration of of people fleeing. Uh, the Nazis, who have no place else to go but Palestine, and whom the British helped to uh, to come to Palestine, who come with human capital and real capital, I mean money. They're allowed by the transfer agreement to bring in a certain proportion of their assets. The Nazis steal the rest. The point is the changes in Palestine between 1931 and 1939 are phenomenal as a result of Nazism. This is before the Holocaust. This is before the Vansi Conference, before they've decided to exterminate. They're only persecuting and imprisoning and beginning the creation of the concentration camps, which later on turned into death camps. The impact on Palestine is phenomenal. It's part of our history as Palestinians, and most Palestinians have no idea, and they should understand that. So we have collective, we have shared history, whether we realize it or not, Israelis and Palestinians. That's only one of multiple examples. I mean, the global changes that make Zionism possible, that make resistance by the Palestinians possible, decolonization and so on and so forth. All of those things are in some part of our shared history. So my point is not, you know, this person gets labeled that way or this that person gets it. I hope the book led, leads people to not only have a different framing of the conflict, but to understand that some things that are seen as absolute givens, we have certain rights, they must not have those rights, are not an acceptable basis for, not only not an acceptable basis for a solution, but are not a sustainable basis for a solution. You cannot hold people down in that way forever without it boomeranging on you. And Israelis, for reasons that we needn't go into now, many of them, most of them, are not convinced of that. And I'm not only trying to convince Israelis, I'm also trying to convince supporters of Israel. This is not a way to establish some secure future for Jewish, the Jewish people in Palestine. This is the way leading to eternal enmity and eternal problems. You win over this Arab dictator, you win over this Arab absolute monarch, you still haven't won over Arabs. Look at the public opinion polls I cite. Public People say the Arabs are more... No. Undemocratic, unrepresentative, autocrats are dependent on external support, the United States and otherwise, for staying in power and protecting them. And they're sympathetic to Israel because they see Israel as, as, as the, in other words, the road to Washington goes through Tel Aviv. Well, fine. When those people are finally overthrown in 2028, 2035, whatever, what is Israel going to rely on? Arab public opinion hasn't changed. Hasn't changed one bit as far as the basic issues are concerned. One day when there is democracy in the Arab world, it's the least democratic region in the entire globe. Look at Latin America, look at East Europe, look at Southeast Asia, East Asia. They've all transitioned to miserable, corrupt, whatever, but nevertheless democratic regimes with some backsliding and so on. Not the Middle East. And certainly not the Arab world. So you have a democracy for Jews and some Palestinians in Israel. You have some kind of democracy in Turkey. You have a miserable non-democratic but regime with some kind of whatever in Iran. And the Arab world, it's a, it's a, it's a black hole. I mean there are a few democratic countries. You have Tunisia. You have Lebanon. You have Kuwait and the rest. The, the, their rulers don't represent their people. Their rulers aren't the Arabs. Their rulers are the Arab kleptocracies or the Arab – you can call them whatever you want. But they don't represent. And Israel has to come – Israel and its, its friends have to come to terms with that. The self-delusion of the Kushners of this world that because I talk to the crown prince of this or because I talk to the, the sultan of that, that this has solved the problem. This hasn't solved any problem. Those people are so dependent on you. The moment you disappear, they disappear. 
that's not a recipe for a, a long and happy existence for the Jewish people in what they see as their ancestral homeland. So, I mean, hopefully people will take that, uh, have that as a takeaway. Rashid Khalidi, thank you very much. You're very welcome.